You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Well, this is fun. Um, so it's Matthew 3, 13 to 17, and it's the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Great. Thanks, Lucy. Good to see you can't even come back for a weekend without getting roped in in one way or another, isn't it? Um, If you all leave... Still, it's tough. He's still got to be involved. Um, So today we're starting this new series, Jesus' Jewish Roots. What can we learn from the Jewish faith that Jesus was brought up with? I think, I don't know about you, but I think Christians can be pretty rubbish, actually, at being open to seeing what there is to learn from other faith traditions. I think the first time I even heard the idea that we worship the same God as the followers of Judaism, I couldn't really get my head around that. And then when somebody said that we worship the same God that Muslims worship, it blew my mind. It really did. You have to remember that I was brought up in an era where we didn't even trust the Catholics, let alone anybody else. I remember my dad telling me a story once that there was a churches together prayer meeting in my local town. Um, And what used to happen is that every month on a Sunday evening, they would all go round to all the different churches in the town, and then they'd host the prayer meeting at all these different churches. Um, And when it was the Catholics' turn to host the monthly prayer meeting, lots of the Protestants just wouldn't go. They just set up their own kind of like rogue prayer meeting somewhere else. So that's the kind of culture that I was brought up with. So you can imagine the first time somebody says to me that the Muslims are praying to the same God that I am, it did actually blow my mind. But there's so much to learn, isn't there, from all these other traditions. I have a friend who is a liberal Jew, and I say often that I think I have more in common with her interpretation of what we call the Old Testament than I do with many Christians. Just to start at the very beginning, she doesn't think that Genesis 1 is a literal story about two people called Adam and Eve who were actual people. She thinks it's a myth, a story that you tell people, the story that the people were told to tell the people of God a fundamental truth about who they were and how they should live. And if you ask her for her interpretation of that myth, She'll tell you something very similar to what I say when I talk about that chapter when we lead the Being Human course, the introduction to our church and its theology. It's very similar to what I think about that. And I don't think we've just got stuff to learn about theology. I think we've also got stuff to learn from other faith traditions about how we practice our faith. Most of you will know that it's Ramadan at the moment. And we have a number of Muslim staff members here at Oasis Waterloo. 
I was chatting to one of those a couple of weeks ago, Jay, who is one of our benefits uh, and, um, and death advisors here. And I was talking to him about what it's like to fast all day long. And he said, well, I've got to set an alarm. Now it'll be something like four o'clock in the morning because this was a, a few weeks ago. And then I've got to get up that early so that I've got time to pray. And, and then I've got to cook a meal because I can't just have cereal because this is the only meal that I'm going to have until the sun goes down. So I've got to, to cook a real meal and then eat a big meal, which to be honest, I often don't really want at five o'clock in the morning, but I've got to do it to keep me, myself going through the day. And then, and then what happens is I, I go back to bed. But to be honest... You know, I'm awake then, and I've just eaten quite a lot, and so I, I, I really struggle to get back to sleep. So to be honest, I'm kind of up at about four or five o'clock for the day, and then, and then at half past six, my kids wake up, and then I've got to get them ready for school, and I've got to do the school run, and then after all of that, I've got to come into work, and I've got to do a day's work without any food, without lunch, and then at eight o'clock, the sun goes down and I can eat again. And then I go to bed and I get up the day after and I do the same thing again. And I found it really inspirational. I learned a lot. I have learned a lot over so many years from the Muslim staff members and volunteers that we have here about the commitment that they make to their faith. Lucy, who did the reading for years, Lucy and Ian were part of the small group that we used to run when they were in London, and we did a series once on um, looking at different spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, and, and one week at that small group, I talked about fasting, and we agreed together that the next Wednesday, we would all fast for the day, and then we would break that fast with a barbecue at our house on that Wednesday evening. I reckon we ran that small group for five years, and I tell you, it was the only time that everybody was on time, was on that day. <laughs> so there's a lot that we can learn from other faith traditions, but this series that we're going to look at over the next six weeks, it's different even to that, because, and this might shock you, certainly would have shocked me a long time ago, Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus was born a Jew. He worshipped as a Jew. He attended Jewish festivals. He was born of a Jewish mother in Galilee, a Jewish part of the world. All of his friends, disciples, all of them were Jews. He preached from Jewish texts. Here's a quote from uh, an author that I like, Brian McLaren, which gave me the idea for this sermon series. What if Jesus didn't come to start a new religion? But rather, he came to start a political, social, religious, artistic, economic, intellectual, and spiritual revolution that would give birth to a new world. What if Jesus didn't come to start a new religion? See, when we read through the accounts of Jesus' life, it's clear to see that he took his Jewish heritage really seriously. He took his Jewish faith really seriously. He engaged with the Jewish religious leaders of the day. He debated theology with them in the synagogue. All the time, what he was trying to do there was to push them forward, to help them into a deeper understanding of who God was. So over 
the next six weeks, we're going to explore this in a bit more detail and find out what we can learn from this. We'll look at the parts of the Jewish religion that Jesus fought against, the parts that he fulfilled. And this week and next week, we're going to look at the parts that he followed. And this morning, I'm going to look at baptism. So Lucy read to us from Matthew chapter 3, the story of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. The Bible tells us that John the Baptist was, well, at least he was a bit odd. Uh, this is verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. I used to think the first time that you saw him, he was probably the kind of guy that you'd cross the road to try and avoid. But to be honest, over the last couple of years, now I think of him as someone who's probably you'd see sitting drinking a craft day than a pub in Hoxton. But... <laughs> Anyway, John the Baptist was a prophet. He called people to repent, to turn around, to radically rethink everything about how they were living. And as a symbol of this repentance, he encouraged them to take a physical act, to get baptized in the River Jordan, to symbolize the washing away of their old self as they went under the water and the beginning of a new life as they came up out of the river. Now, the idea of baptism wouldn't have been a new thing to Jewish people. At this time, there were two main types of ritual baptism that Jewish people did. Firstly, long before the time of Jesus, Jews had ritual baths in the temple. These were for Jewish people who would come from a long way away to go to a religious ceremony. The point of the bath was to cleanse yourself from all the impurities that you'd managed to pick up along the way from all the Gentiles, all the non-Jewish people that you'd come into contact with on your journey. So you would come to Jerusalem or to wherever it would be for this Jewish festival, but because on the way you had encountered these non-Jewish people, you came straight to the temple and you had this, this ritual bath to wash off all of this contact, all the impurities that you'd had on your journey. And secondly, there's a lot of theologians who think that when John the Baptist was in the wilderness, he was with the Qumran community, or sometimes they're called the Essenes, and they operated outside the temple system. They thought the priests were evil and they were impure. And so the Essenes bathed themselves to sanitize themselves from, well, basically everybody who wasn't an Essene, to be honest. They would take up to seven ritual baths every day. So this is the culture, this is the context that Jesus is walking into here with John the Baptist. But John's baptisms were a different thing altogether. These baptisms weren't about being a chosen few and being better than everybody else and washing the dirt of everybody else off. They weren't done in a temple. It wasn't a message about being clean. John's baptisms were about repenting of how you treated others and vowing to try and do better in the future. And then here comes Jesus. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Matthew puts in the bit about Galilee very deliberately, not just so that we can understand the geography of what's going on here, but because Galilee was a nothing town. 
Matthew wanted to make sure that people knew that Jesus came from nowhere, not from a posh city, not from Jerusalem, but from Galilee, where nothing good comes from. Galilee was on the Palestinian border, and it was surrounded by towns that were full of Greeks. There were loads of Gentiles, non-Jewish people living there, and it was a poor place. It was the kind of place that the big cities, the people who were living in those big cities, the, the religious leaders, they looked down on a place like Galilee. It wasn't the place for the king of the Jews to arrive from. That's why Matthew makes this point. But arrive from there, Jesus does. And John the Baptist doesn't want to baptize him. John says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. But Jesus convinces him, and this is something that theologians have discussed for centuries. Why did Jesus want to get baptized? It clearly says a few verses earlier that John's baptisms are for repentance. So if Jesus hasn't sinned, why does he need to get baptized? There are loads of different answers that have been put forward to this. But before we get to it, people often talk about why Jesus got baptized. But they don't often talk about the type of baptism that Jesus chose. He didn't choose to go to the temple like one of those ritual baptisms I talked about earlier. He was a good Jew. He could have done that. He could have gone and had a ritual baptism in the temple surrounded by other good Jews and no one else. But he didn't. He didn't choose to get baptized in such a way as to separate himself from anyone that he deemed unworthy like the Essenes did. He chose to go to John in the River Jordan and get baptized with everybody else, with all the common people, with all the Gentiles, with anyone who was willing to walk into a river even Jesus' very act of getting baptized said, this new beginning that John's talking about, it's for everyone. It's not just for a select few. As for why Jesus wanted to get baptized, even though he had no sins to repent of, I think that's partly because we've misunderstood what repentance is. We've been told that it's all about the forgiveness of our sins, but the original Hebrew concept is called teshuva, which means to return. There's a theologian called Walter Brueggemann who says, repentance is not merely words of sorrow, but acts of restoration. It's not just about saying something, it's about doing something. It's about thinking differently, and it's about living differently. We haven't got time to go too deeply into repentance and what that means this morning. But basically, John didn't want people to repent and be baptized just because they were sinful, but because John understood that through Jesus, God was breaking into the world in a new way. And John wanted people to be able to join in with that. It's an act of restoration. Get involved. And Jesus understood this. Remember, because repentance means turning away, that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was turning away from all the old structures, all the values of the society around him, all the old order. Jesus comes up 
out of the water in the River Jordan with a new mission. There's a reason that this is the first story that we hear about Jesus as an adult. There's a reason that this happens before Jesus does anything else. Jesus emerges from that river ready to revolutionize what's around him. Ready to challenge the oppressive structures, the systems. There's a guy called Ched Myers who says that this is baptism as declaration of resistance. Jesus getting baptized comes out of the water to declare that he is standing up against these systems, against these structures. Baptism as declaration of resistance. I have left the old way of things behind in the water. And now, today, I get to work. So what does this mean to us? Why 2,000 years later do we still baptize people? Because, you know, it is a bit odd, isn't it? For people in the first century, it made sense. Jewish people had been practicing these ritual baptisms for ages, so it fit. They understood why people might do this. But we're in London 2,000 years on, and I'm not sure that we have a culture of ritual cleansing, do we? Unless I've missed something? No? No, I don't think we do really, no. So why do we do it? Because it could be seen as an odd thing. Infant baptism, like the Anglicans do, there's still a bit more of a tradition around that, isn't there? People who have got no interest in church still like to get some water splashed over their kids when they're born, aren't they? Just in case, you know. Um, I've been to a few of these types of christenings, children of mates who would never darken the door of a church if it wasn't for a christening, a wedding, or a funeral. And sometimes I feel like they're a bit odd if you do go there having a bit of a faith background. I went to one where eight babies were being christened in one go, in one service, and the vicar stood up and he said, um, today we give thanks for, and he read out all of the eight names one after each other. And it sounded very much like when I used to run a football team back in the day, and I read out the team sheet, Andy and Goal, Steph, Nick, John, Luke and Chris at the back, Mike, Dave and Sean in the middle. It sounded a lot like that. Also, one of the dads of one of these eight kids was sat in front of me when he wasn't at the front doing his little bit. And the entire time that he was there, when he was sat in front of me, he was playing online poker on his phone. It just seemed a bit strange, really. But he was doing it because it was a cultural norm. It still is a cultural norm, isn't it? Like adult baptism would have been in first century Palestine. But we're not in first century Palestine, so why do we do it still? Well, firstly, I think if it was good enough for Jesus, it's probably good enough for his followers. When the earliest followers of Jesus were baptized, they did it knowing also that they were taking part in an act of resistance. Remember at that time, Christianity would have been illegal. And what they were doing there was they were pledging their allegiance to the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of Caesar. In the middle of the Roman Empire, to pledge your allegiance to a different kingdom was a revolutionary act, an act of resistance. And then when the first Baptist churches started in England at the beginning of the 17th century, they were also illegal. 
one of the reasons that they split from the Anglican Church was this idea that by choosing as an adult to get baptized, you were imitating Jesus' baptism, and you were taking on the mission that Jesus started. Again, illegal. Again, an act of revolution. So yeah, I understand that it can seem like an odd thing to do to get baptized, I can understand that it might seem a bit out of place in the 21st century, but I also think that actually some traditions aren't that bad. When you step into a baptismal pool and go under the water and come back out again, you're following in the footsteps of 2,000 years of Christ followers who have said, here I am, I'm making a public declaration that I am going to join this mission that started with Jesus in the River Jordan, to live my life committing, to live justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, to serve others, to love God, to love my neighbor. It's about a new beginning. Regardless of who you are, where you've been, what you've done, this is a public symbol of a new beginning. And however old you are, however young you are, new beginnings are important. I was talking about this sermon with an old friend of mine from university. He'd had a, a pretty rough time at his sixth form college, never been particularly popular, always struggled to, to kind of make friends. And then he came to university and he ended up living in halls of residence on the same floor as a group of people who liked the same kind of music that he liked, enjoyed going out to the same kind of places that he liked, liked playing pool, liked going to the football, liked all the things that he liked. I'm still friends with him now, 25 years later, and he told me once, years after that, that one night, early in that first year at university, when he realized that he was suddenly part of this gang of really close friends, he said he lay in bed one night, and he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe how fortunate he was to have stumbled into this group of friends. He said, it sounds like a small thing, but to him, that new beginning was hugely important. He found a community. And sometimes new beginnings can be much bigger than that, can't they? This is a girl called Paige Hunter. On Friday night, I went, and a few others did here as well, to Union Chapel to watch a band called The Young Uns Play, who I love. They've just released a new album. It's called Tiny Notes, and the title track is written about this lady, Paige. When she was 18 and really struggling with her mental health, on a, a January evening in 2018, she walked up to the Wearside Bridge in, in Sunderland with the intention of taking her own life. As she stood at the edge of this bridge, two strangers spotted what was happening. They ran up to her and they said, you are worth so much more than this. You are worth so much more than this. Paige turned away from the edge of that bridge and she says, those words changed my life. She went home and she thought, if those words could help me, who else could they help? So the next day, she wrote those words down on loads of pieces of paper. You are worth 
so much more than this. And then she took those pieces of paper and she tied them to the railings of the Wearside Bridge. Days later, she went back with some more notes, some more things that she'd written. Don't give up. Not now, not tomorrow, not ever. Even though things are difficult, your life matters. Although the world is darkening, somewhere there's light. Day after day, she'd go back to the bridge and tie these notes to the railings. Sarah Erica was 25 years old. She walked up to the Wearside Bridge one night and then she saw the messages. They gave me hope, Sarah said. Paige is obviously fighting such a battle to see someone who's fought through every day. She's given me motivation to want to carry on. She took one of the notes home with her and when she needs reassurance, she refers back to it. She picks it up again to remind herself that although sometimes I might feel alone, I'm not alone. Callum Dogrell in early 2019 was going through a really rough patch. He walked up to the bridge and then he saw a note which said, pause, stop, breathe. There are better options and there are people who love you. He took the note and he walked away from the bridge. It saved my life, Callum said. It reminded me that I have a purpose and sometimes that's all people need to hear. Paige's new beginning led to a new beginning for Sarah and it led to a new beginning for Callum. Then there's the verse from the song that the young'uns wrote for Paige. Unknown number texts on Christmas morning. It says, you don't know me nor what I've been through. But here's my newborn baby sleeping by the Christmas tree. I never would have seen her without you. Just from the messages that she's received, Paige thinks that she's saved over 30 lives with these notes. And that's just the ones that she knows about. New beginnings. What's your new beginning? What's the area in your life where you wish you had the courage to step out publicly? To step out in faith? To live more radically? I sometimes think that sometimes the problem is that people think, oh, that's not for me. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. Brave stories about new beginnings, they're for somebody else. That's not me. If that is you, look at these verses. Immediately after Jesus got baptized, 
we read these words. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It is important to note this in these verses, that Jesus hasn't done anything yet. This is the first time we hear of Jesus as an adult. He hasn't healed anyone yet. He hasn't gathered a following of people around him. He hasn't done anything. But still, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Hear this today. God doesn't love you because of what you do or don't do. Today, God looks at you and says, this is my child whom I love. With them I am well pleased. New beginnings are for everyone. But we know that from this point forward, Jesus gets to work. He doesn't just go back to the synagogues and spend the rest of his life preaching. He challenges the systems, he challenges the structures, he gets out, he gets his hand dirty, he walks around, he meets people, he does stuff. Does so much stuff. Challenges so many structures and systems that three short years after this, he gets executed as a political revolutionary, as a credible threat to the Roman Empire. It's not just about knowing stuff. It's about doing stuff. I love this quote from Richard Raw, who's a Catholic theologian and author that we talk about quite a lot here. How you do life is your real and final truth, not what ideas you believe. How you do life is your real and final truth, not what ideas you believe. We can all have great ideas, can't we? We can all have great thoughts. We can all have great opinions about stuff. We can all believe the right things, say the right things. But it's what we do that matters, isn't it? That's what counts. What is it that you want to do? How can you get Involved with this revolutionary mission that Jesus started that day? How can we get outside of the walls of this church to transform our society? What do you want to do? Is it giving up that boring day-to-day job? That job which, well, you know, it's fine, isn't it? To go after the thing that you've always dreamed about. Is it speaking to someone here about starting that project that you've always wanted to do and not quite been brave enough to step forward? What is it? What's your new beginning? Just as I end, there's one more quote. It's one of my favorites. It's from a poet, Ted Hughes, from a letter that he wrote to his son. This is what it says. The only calibration that counts is how much heart people invest, how much they ignore their fears of being hurt or caught out or humiliated. And the only thing people regret is that they didn't live boldly enough. 
that they didn't invest enough heart, that they didn't love enough. Don't let another week go by. Let today be your new beginning. The only calibration that counts is how much heart people invest, how much they ignore their fears of being hurt or caught out or humiliated. And the only thing people regret is that they didn't live boldly enough, that they didn't invest enough heart, that they didn't love enough. New beginnings. Let's start today. I'm going to invite Anna to come back, but before she does, let's just have a moment of silence. And if you're up for this, let's commit, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, let's commit to thinking about what that new beginning could look like. To living out what we believe to taking a chance. What does it mean for you to invest more heart, to live more boldly, to live your life challenging the systems and structures, to forget the past, to forget what you've left behind in that water? What does it mean for you to start anew? to leave behind the baggage, to come out of the River Jordan, to come up out of that water, ready to start again, to start afresh, leaving behind all the things you want to leave behind. What does it mean to you to begin anew?